But before I read that, I just want to share an illustration with you this past week. And uh, this morning's message is entitled, Consider Your Calling. Consider Your Calling. And I want to share with you a story about a woman named Gladys May Alward. Um, she was a British parlor maid. And uh, she grew up among the very poor of England. And because she had a learning disability, she dropped out of school early. She became a domestic servant for a well-to-do British family. She was a real tiny woman. I mean, some of you are pretty tiny, but she was really tiny. She was only four foot ten. That's pretty small. And her job demanded long hours and hard work and low pay, obviously. Um, and when she was in her late 20s, she was riding a bus to work, and she was reading a newspaper. And there was an article in the newspaper, and it said, there's a need for missionaries in China. Missionaries for Christ. And from that moment on, Gladys found that her heart was broken for China. Literally broken. She just wept over this country. And she resolved to go herself. She really felt God leading her to do this. And she applied to the board of China Inland Mission, and they turned her down. And she was crushed with disappointment, the story says, and she returned to her small upstairs room. She opened her purse, she turned it upside down, she shook it, and two pennies fell out onto her Bible. That's all she had. And she said, oh God, here's my Bible, here's my money, and here's me. Use me, God. Well, she started scrimping and saving every little penny she earned. And finally, she determined that while she could never save enough to travel to China by ship, it's just way too expensive for her budget, she could scrape together enough for a train ticket across Europe and Asia. It was a very dangerous trip because of the war that was blazing on the Manchurian border. And the day finally came when a few of her bewildered family friends and uh, family members gathered at London's Liverpool station to see her off. And this little woman traveled from England across the Channel to the Hague, across to Europe, Moscow, across Siberia toward China. Bundled in an overcoat and orange frock, Gladys carried her bedroll, two suitcases, one stocked with food, and a bag clanking with pots and pans. Day and night, the train passed, pressed on into the frigid Siberian wasteland, and finally stopped in the dead of night in the middle of a wasteland. There was nothing there. It was at the war zone. The other passengers, all soldiers at this point, disembarked and headed in the direction of the gunfire. Gladys got off, didn't know what to do, so she started trudging backwards, suitcases in hand, the way the train had come. She almost died before she found the nearest station because of the frigid air. By sheer determination, Gladys Alward finally arrived in China and moved in with an older single missionary woman 
who, as it turned out, didn't quite know what to do with Gladys. To make a long story short, Gladys Allward, parlor maid from England, became one of the most famous missionaries of the 20th century. A woman who had been called the most noted single woman missionary in modern history. There was a popular biography about her. It was made into a movie. Started uh, starring Ingrid Bergman. She was featured in an episode of television's This Is Your Life. She even dined with Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. She traveled the world speaking in some of, the, of America's greatest churches. Gladys once said this. She's quoted as saying, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. There was somebody else. I don't know who it was. God's first choice. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. <laughs> Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys outward. You know, as you read that, your heart's moved because you realize that God can use virtually anybody if they're willing. I would have to disagree with her, though. I don't believe that she was God's second, third, or fourth choice. (laughs) I know that was spoken of a heart of humility on her part, but I believe that she was God's first choice. And I believe that because our text shows us clearly that God delights in saving and using the people who are nobodies in this world. I don't know if you have any of these memories, but I do. I remember being in gym class growing up and being lined up against a wall outside, and they'd pick some first-string jock to pick the, class, pick the teams. And I'd stand there just praying that I wasn't the last one to be picked. Because the biggest were always picked. I wasn't that big in high school. The best were always picked first. You know, you wanted them on your team. Maybe you were considered the least athletic or the least popular when you were growing up. You hoped that just once, once, you wouldn't be picked last. But every time, it was the same. Yeah, okay, we'll take him. But see, God isn't like us, is he? He's definitely not like us. The kid who always is picked last on the playground is the one whom God would pick first doesn't make logical sense, but that's exactly what he does. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 17 through 25, and we talked about the foolishness and the power of the cross. We talked about a couple things. We talked about how human wisdom is inferior. We see that in verse 17. That word, Sophia, the love of wisdom, philosophy, would be the way we would describe it today. And Paul says there very clearly that God's not interested in that. He says, I did, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, what? The gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. So many times when people 
tell me, yeah, I just, I don't know how to share my faith, you know, I'm just afraid I might say the wrong thing or whatever. Fear keeps us from a lot of things, including witnessing on behalf of Christ. We feel we don't have the sophistication in our language, or maybe we stutter a little bit, or maybe we're afraid we'll be asked a question. See, all that is counterintuitive when it comes to the wisdom of God. The human wisdom is inferior to God's wisdom completely. And we saw in verse 18 how God's wisdom is superior. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those who are yet to be saved, when they hear the message of the cross, it just doesn't do anything for them. They laugh at it. What, what do you want me to do? Give my life to Jesus? Why? Especially in our area here. We live in a very affluent area, very expensive area. It's probably the most expensive area in the whole country to live, including New York City. This particular place in the Bay Area on the peninsula. A lot of influence here, a lot of money here. They hear the message of the cross. They hear the message of the gospel that Christ wants to give them something for nothing. They scratch their head and they go, what? Where's the catch? They can't comprehend it. It's folly to them. But to us, he says in verse 18, who are being saved, and notice it says being saved. Sometimes we need to remember that, yes, positionally we're saved before God, but practically we're being saved each and every day. The last time I checked it, none of us have our glorified bodies yet. That's the goal, to be in the presence of God with our glorified bodies, free not only from the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. Can you imagine what it's going to be like that day when we're ushered into his glory? I mean, it makes you want, want it to happen right now, doesn't it? I mean, just make a list of all your problems right now. As a believer, man, when you're going to have, they're gone. They're gone. doesn't matter anymore. And just to be in the presence of God, our Savior. It says, to us who are being saved, we're in the process of sanctification. God's making us more like his son each and every day, even though he's forgiven us of all our sin, and, and positionally we are perfected before God, but practically we're living it out. This word of the cross, this message of the gospel, is the power of God. So to those who are perishing, the unbelievers, it's folly. It's, it's, the Greek word is moriah, moronic, nonsensical. It makes no sense. But to us who are being saved, it's dunamis, it's power. And so it's far superior, the superior wisdom of God to human wisdom. And then in verses 19 to 20, we looked at quickly, we looked at God's wisdom is permanent. And he quotes Isaiah 29, and he says, you know what, it is written. And he wants us to clearly understand, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Oh, you think you're wise in this world? It's going to be wiped out. It's not going to thwart the purpose of God. Matter of fact, God made moronic the wisdom of this world. 
Isaiah talks about the scribe and the debater, the people who sit around and talk about things that they don't even understand. I was listening to a high school student the other day describe their classes, and they were saying, oh, yes, well, you know, over the summer we, we talked about, here's how she described it, unified science. And she started talking about how cells are perfectly arranged and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if she goes to a Christian school. <laughs> and she was talking to her father. And she said, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat how all this has come together. And he goes, well, what are you going to study this? Well, now we, now we move on to evolution. <laughs> and I thought, how nonsensical is that? You sit back and you look at the grandeur of, of the creation. And then you go, well, yeah, but it all just kind of... Washed up on the bank somehow. It's crazy. And they write God completely out of the picture. Well, God's wisdom is far more than that. It's superior. It's permanent. And then in verses 21 to 25, it's powerful. The wisdom of God, the plan of salvation, didn't come through the the wisdom of man, Paul says. It's not something that you can just sit down and study a book and learn how to be a Christian. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way to any of us. I dare to say if all those who are believers here stood up and gave their testimony, we would not hear somebody who says, yeah, you know, I just picked up this book, How to Be a Christian, and it just made sense, and so I just thought I'd start following Christ. Usually, it, God... It's God interjecting himself in your life. It's God calling you to himself. And sometimes the call makes no sense at all. Think about the calls that were extended in the Bible. Some of them made no sense. You want me to leave my family and go where? Well, don't worry about it. I'll tell you. Wait a minute. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But it's a powerful wisdom that God has. And we said that the Jews demanded signs. And to them, this, this message of the cross was what? It was a scandal. Scandalon is the original language. It's a stumbling block. It's something they would trip over. The other night, I got out of bed, get a glass of water, and I tripped over a book that was next to the, my, my bed. I almost went down. I thought of that. I thought, that's, 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 what it, that's what this is. To the Jews, it was a, stum- a stumbling block. You're going to, what, take the Messiah and he's going to die on a cross? Are you kidding me? And then to the Greeks who seek wisdom, it just says that it's folly, it's foolishness. But to the believers, Christ is power and wisdom of God. And we ended that message saying that believers recognize two truths. First of all, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. If God could be foolish, (laughs) that would even be wiser than us on our best day. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Stop and think of the power of God. The fact that God just spoke and things were done. Complete. Completely created. He didn't have to sit down and design the hippopotamus or the aardvark or the porcupine. I mean, think if he had to design that thing. Okay, we're going to have this animal. It's going to have all these things coming out of it. I mean, it would take you years. 
And then you look at the human body. He just spoke these things into existence. That's the power of the God that we serve. Well, today's message, we'll be looking at verses 26 to 31, and I want to read these for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're focusing on consider your calling. He says in verse, he writes, he continues in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in what? Boast in the Lord. The proposition that Paul lays before us today in this text is simply this. God has chosen to save the nobodies of the world so that all boasting will be eliminated except the boasting that is in Christ. Aren't you glad that God does not require us to be perfected in our sanctification before he chooses to use us? Do you ever think about that? I mean, usually, you know, you say you get a new job and they put you through all this training. Why? Because they, they, they want you to be the best. And God says, yeah, we'll work it out. You're in process, but I'm going to use you anyway. You're imperfect, but I'm going to use you anyway. Do you ever think about this? God, God's imperfect heroes in the Bible, it was Noah who got drunk. It was Abraham who lied about his wife. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab was a harlot. Samson had some major problems with lust and anger. David, he was an adulterer. Paul, who was Saul previously, he persecuted the church. He killed Christians. And you even get to, to Peter. And you see that Peter was the one who denied Christ. See, the text that we're going to look at this morning, verses 26 to 31, and I don't know if we'll get through the whole thing or not, but it, it really proves the principle that, that God won't tolerate human pride. He simply will not tolerate human pride. So he chooses people who have nothing to be prideful about, have nothing to be bragging about. Now, you need to go back and you need to remember who Paul is writing to here. Who's he writing this letter to? Remember, this is a letter. We think it is a book, but it's really a letter. It's something that you sit down and read in one setting. He's writing it to who? The Corinthian church. Those believers in Corinth who were Christians. Now, Corinth, we know, was a place 
of world trade. It was a very prominent city. It was filled with worldly influences and fleshly desires as any city is. It was a city also filled with very prominent people from across the region because it was a trade center. It was not some sort of humble place. It was not a place that you would call some podunk town somewhere. It would be the New York City or the San Francisco of our day. You might say it would be considered very trendy today, very modern, very cultural. Well, here is where God called Paul to, by his grace, plant and lead this church. And so this church was filled with all sorts of people from different backgrounds because people from different backgrounds came from all over the, the world. I remember several years ago when we were in Dubai worshiping on a, a Friday because that's when they worship in the Christian church over there on Fridays, not Sundays. And I remember going to this church in downtown Dubai, met in a Marriott hotel. They rented it for four hours. Cost them $1,000 an hour. Crazy. As I looked over the congregation, it's like, it looks like this congregation. There are like 900 people there. People from all over the world. The only thing common really they had was Christ, and they all spoke English. So it was an English-speaking service. And they got up and they sang praise songs just like we would do. And I'm thinking, wow, are we in Dubai? <laughs> Praising Christ? And we had a chance to meet with the, the pastor afterwards, and he said, yeah, he goes, most of the people that live in Dubai and even Abu Dhabi and the surrounding area are, are people from other countries. They come there to work. So there was a real need for a church there. And see, that's the kind of place that Corinth was. It was a very prominent place And their church was filled with all kinds of people from different backgrounds and cultures. Some were Jews, some were Gentiles before they came to Christ. Some had a full religious upbringing. Other people were from a pure pagan background. It was really a, a mishmash of everything society held in its day. But as we read from this section on basically till the end of the book we find out that this church was far, far from perfect. Far from perfect. Matter of fact, it was really a church that was filled with imperfect people who had been saved, who had been transformed by God's grace. That's what any church is. I mean, Paul starts out strong. Remember back in chapter 1, he addresses them as saints in Christ Jesus. That sounds like a pretty spiritual term. Wow, they're saints in Christ Jesus. And then he continues on, and he even extends thanks to God for the grace that he gave them. He commends them on not lacking any spiritual gifts. But, then he addresses some issues. The main one being that there were divisions among the church. It's not hard to understand, right? You have people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different religious experiences, different 
social strata. They're all coming together because they have Christ in common. And the Corinthians made some major mistakes. They replaced Christ, first of all, with human wisdom. They looked at Christ, and then they looked at what the world had to offer, and they said, yeah, we're going to do it this way instead. Thank you, Jesus. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Look at a lot of the modern-day churches today. I think they're replacing human wisdom. They're replacing Christ with human wisdom. The Corinthians also replaced the cross with their own ability. There are churches that exist today that don't have a cross. They won't have a cross because they feel that it's offensive to who they're trying to reach. They also replaced grace with worldly status. It became an issue in the church, as we're going to find out later on in this book. I mean, a big issue. They were putting emphasis on how much people made and where they lived and what kind of car they drove or chariot or whatever they drove back then. And they apparently became very prideful. Now, we're talking about people in the church. This isn't people of the world, just so we understand each other. Matter of fact, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 18, look at what he says, just turn over a couple pages. He says, some of you have become arrogant. He says the same thing in chapter 5, verse 2. He says, you're proud, you're arrogant. Paseo is that word, it means to puff up, to make proud, to pump your chest out. Look at me. And so Paul had to combat the sin of pride, the sin of division. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of their humble past. And so he continues to confront them on this issue and many more. As a matter of fact, as the book goes on, throughout the remainder of this letter, all the way till chapter 16, he's just dealing with stuff, dealing with issues, dealing with sin in the church. We said the one thing that God will not stand for, he will not tolerate human pride. Well, Paul shows us how God destroys human pride, at least when it comes to salvation. Look at what he says in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. For consider, that word, blepo, consider, it means to see, to observe, to ponder, to think about. What's interesting about this word, it's in the present tense. In other words, this is a continuous activity that should be going on in their lives. It's in the indicative mood. And moods are basically forms of a verb that help express how the action or the event is presented by the speaker. You have the indicative, the subjunctive, imperative. But the indicative mood, what's shown here... It presents the action or the event as something real, something without a doubt. It's certain. It's an it's a objectable fact. There's no question here. He says, consider. When's the last time you considered, thought about, pondered your calling by God? This is something that we should be continually doing. But I think so many Christians in our churches today have totally forgotten <laughs> 
that we're called to do this. We need to do it more often. I mean, sometimes I'll just sit there and ponder and I'll say, God, why did you save me? Why? What's the purpose? Why don't you save the guy who's across the street? Or the person down the block? Or one of my other siblings? Why did you save me? See, that's what Paul is telling us to do. Consider that calling. Ponder it. Calling here refers to the saving call of God, the effectual call that results in redemption. It refers to our salvation. So he's talking about people who possess salvation here. And we should do this in our individual lives, but what I found out this these past several weeks, actually, as I've been studying because we've had speakers come. What I found out that this consider your calling is plural. See, he's not talking to, to Ambika or Ken or Terry or Danny. He's not, he's, not, he's not addressing individuals here. Who's he addressing? The Corinthian church in its entirety. You say, well, does that make a difference? Sure it does. It makes a big difference. He's addressing the whole church in Corinth as a body. Why? Because he was concerned about the image that they were giving the community in which they lived. We held a little workshop this morning. We all got around tables. And I said, you know what? The elders decided to come up with an advertising campaign for Grace Bible Church right here in the peninsula in Redwood City. Here's a piece of paper. I want you to come up with 10 things that should be part of this advertising campaign for Grace Bible Church. I mean, we do advertising occasionally, Christmas, Easter, whatever. We'll put something maybe in the paper or we'll put a banner out. We do it on the website on the radio. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what images would you want to portray Grace Bible Church to our lost and dying community? What would you highlight in that campaign? Some of you are very skilled in that. Matter of fact, some of you do this for a profession. <laughs> so I'm sure you come up with all kinds of things. I went on several church websites this past week just to see what they would do, what they would say. Some of them highlighted influential people that were part of their congregation. I mean, we have some influential people that live here. Dr. Rice goes to a church to be the Secretary of State. Pretty influential, I would say. There's Several other people that are very influential own mega-billion-dollar companies that go to church somewhere. Some of the churches mentioned how relevant they were to the society in which they lived. They mentioned good deeds that they did. They gave images of relationships, you know, images like people sitting around the table, eating, smiling, everybody smiling all the time. You never see a picture of... Uh, you never see that person. 
Some of them gave the impression you can go there and be entertained. You know, they'd have pictures of their platform, and boy, it looks like a concert. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's, that's what they want you to see. Others would have pictures around their coffee shop they held, had in the uh, lobby of the church and people sitting there listening to the sermon, drinking a latte or whatever. And they all had perfect smiles, perfect teeth. I mean, how many of those scenes actually show people the true message of the gospel? I mean, I'm not saying smart Good-looking people can't come to faith in Jesus Christ, amen? I mean, hopefully you would agree with that. They can. But you know what? Sometimes we come up with an advertising campaign. We come up with this picture that we want the world to see our church as. And it's not much different than some, a company like Starbucks would come up with. Think about it. I mean, very similar. They want people to be attracted to their brand. So what do they do? Well, they create this image that shows them as caring. So now when you go to Starbucks, you can never go in the restroom because there's usually somebody in there that doesn't even buy a Starbucks in there, which is very frustrating. And they usually don't leave them very nice when they leave. But that's okay. They need somewhere to go to, I guess. It's better than, no, whatever. Anyway. But you know what? I don't think we're far from thinking those same things ourselves. I mean, in other words, we're, we're attracted to those things too. We're attracted to influential people. Why do you watch some of the shows you watch? Why do you read some of the magazines you read? I get an email once in a while, and it, I don't even know how I got on this list, but it's an email of people selling their multi-billion dollar houses or whatever, I always click on it. Look, I just want to see what this guy's, you know, what this house is. I mean, they have, they have bathrooms that are twice the size of our house. It's amazing. You know, and they're, they're only selling it for $15.8 million or some big yacht or whatever. I mean, you know, I'll click on that and say, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm warped back to reality and... <laughs> but see, we, we enjoy that. We, we were attracted to that. Because it's, it's, it's really natural to be attracted to those things. It's fleshly, you might say, to be attracted to those. That's our default to be attracted to those things. That's why advertising works so well on us. Basically, advertising, what? It creates a desire and a need for something that you don't. <laughs> you don't need it. But it creates a desire that, boy, you just can't live without it. So what's the best way to advertise the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. What words would we use to describe our church? One church said this, Hope in our church, in our community, and around the world. Church doesn't just happen within our four walls. Join us as we join with God in the work he is doing in our world today. Check out all the ministries and events happening here. There is a place for you. Nothing wrong with that. Very positive message. I would argue a more biblical presentation for an advertising campaign would be the lives of those who have been converted and been transformed by the power of the gospel. 
And that's why Paul is saying, Corinthians, all right, you are in a place in society, a city where people need Christ. What are they seeing in you? Not as individuals, I mean, that's a given, but as a church. What are they seeing? What words would we use to describe our congregation? I thought of a couple biblical ones, converted. Wow, that's not a good word in our society today. Sanctified. Righteous. Redeemed. Forgiven. See, those are all words that describe the biblical church as we know it. And yet, Paul wants the Corinthians to know that, you know what? You're, you're kind of forgetting what you should be considering concerning your calling. And notice it's your calling. It's not your invitation. It's your calling. I mean, if you just showed up at our house tonight and said, hey, I'm here for dinner. Okay, Um, did I miss something? I mean, we'd probably be gracious in that, but I'd be wondering, did we invite them? It's a little weird. Somebody just shows up, hey, I'm here for dinner. And yet, that's how we treat the gospel sometimes. We think that somehow people just show up at Jesus' foot, hey, I'm here now. I decided this is the time. No, it says that we were called by God. We have to be reminded of that. For consider your calling, brothers. And then he says this, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. See, God doesn't call outstanding people. There was one very wealthy socialite who got converted under the ministry of Whitfield. And she read these verses and she said, you know what? I was saved by the letter M. By the letter M. She said, because it says, not many of you were wise according to the standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It doesn't say not any. It didn't preclude her because she was wealthy and a socialite of coming to Christ, but that's usually not the way it works. That's definitely the grace of God in those situations because it says here that not many wise. Why? Because the wisdom of man is inferior to the wisdom of God. The gospel doesn't make sense to those who are not converted. Not many powerful. Well, why not? There's no need for them. I mean, if you were powerful enough to save yourself, what would you need a Savior for? And yet that's exactly what so many people think. They think their wealth, their money, whatever, somehow their their good deeds. They think that there's power in all those things. There's not. And Paul says, this is not describing you. It's not, you weren't wise according to worldly standards. You weren't powerful according to worldly standards. You weren't of noble birth doesn't say none of them were, but not many of them were. 
Most of them weren't. And he tells us the reason. Why in verse 27? Because God calls simple and humble people. He calls simple and humble people. It says right there, but God chose. But God chose. He not only chose you, but he called you. He not only called you, but he saved you. He not only saved you, but he's sanctifying you. He's not only sanctifying you, but one day he's going to glorify you. This is God's work in salvation. This is his deal. It's not ours. We don't get to choose and decide and invite ourselves to the table of grace. It happens because God has extended the invitation. But God chose, when did he do that? By the way, it tells us over in, what, Ephesians, right? Chapter 1. Look over there real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. If you're ever frustrated in your spiritual growth, or if you're ever really frustrated or down spiritually, read Ephesians 1. Just read it. I mean, how can you be depressed after you read this? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's when it happened. You weren't even here when he chose you. You weren't even lined up against the wall and he chose you. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption of sons. Not only chose us, but he adopted us as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which, by the way, he lavished. It means he dumped it on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen to this, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. And by the way, it's all to the praise of his glory. Amen? This is our salvation. This is what the world needs to see and hear in us. It's not concerned about other things that are foolishness. They, they want to know. People do desire and want to know, is Christ real? Is this Christianity thing real? And when the church gives the world an imperfect picture of who Christ is and what it means to be a Christian, it really hinders, to some degree, the testimony of Christ. 
And so God says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to call the, the simple and the humble people, verse 27, back in 1 Corinthians. He called the foolish to shame the wise. He called the, the weak to shame the strong. He called the lowborn, or those who were not of noble birth and despised. He called the nothing to nullify the something. It's really what it tells us there. One commentator says, you know, this isn't God, this isn't Paul, God through Paul, saying, okay, in society, you have the high influential people and the, the wise people and the strong people, and then you have these low-life Christians over here who are just stupid. They can't understand anything. They're just you know, the people that cling to their guns and their Bibles, <laughs> as someone once said. The goal is not this. Paul is not saying, oh, these poor, measly people over here, I'm elevating them. It's good to be unwise, It's good to be weak. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is trying to get us to see is that when you have a social strata that thinks they're wise and they're strong and they're of noble birth, what happens? For them to come to Christ, where do they have to go? They have to come down. They have to come down to our level. There's only one elevator that goes up, and it's on the ground floor. You can't start at the top and go any higher. And what what Paul is trying to get us to see is that, you know what? It's not a matter of bragging about how unwise we are or how silly we are as Christians. We believe all the stories in the Bible. You know, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, you know what, if you're claiming to be wise, if you're claiming to be powerful, if you're claiming to be somebody of noble birth, That doesn't get you nothing with God. Absolutely zero. If that's all you got when you get to heaven, that's all you're going to get. You're going to get a big thumbs down, big red buzzer. Trap door is going to open. You're going to be gone from the presence of God. You're going to be ushered in to an eternal hell of torment forever. I mean, we laugh at that, but it's really not a joke, is it? All eternity lies in the balance. God does this for three reasons. First of all, to destroy all human pride. This is why this gospel message makes no sense to those who are outside of Christ. They can't understand it. The Bible says they can't. The Bible says the natural man, what? Cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. This is not just a book that you you read at night before you go to bed. This is a supernatural communication from the divine creator God to us as individuals. And it has to be spiritually discerned. Now, if you come to Christ, God gives you the spirit. I mean, how many of us have read the Bible before we ever became a Christian? Probably a lot of us tried to read it. You know, you get back there in Genesis. I'm just going to start reading. I guess it's a book. I'll start at the beginning. And you start reading Genesis, well, this is kind of interesting. Then you get to begat, 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 and you're like, yeah, later. I ain't going through that. Why? Because you don't have the Spirit of God. You can't discern it. 
It's not based on your human wisdom. Interesting note here where verse 28, when God says God chose what is low and despised in the world, and then he says this, even things that are not to bring nothing things that are. I went to this verse and I thought about this and I thought, this is interesting. This is really modeled in Christ himself. The idea that things that are not are confounding things that are. Follow my train of thought. In, in Matthew chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, it talks about you know, the flight of Egypt and Herod killing all the kids and all that stuff, horrible. And then it talks about Jesus returning to Nazareth. It says in verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise and take the child and her mother and go to the land of, uh, go to the land of Israel. For those who's, who sought the child's life are dead. Okay, so it's safe. You can go back home now. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withheld to the district of Galilee. And then verse 23, look at what it says here. And he went and he lived in the city called Nazareth. That was spoken by the prophets that it might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You say, where are you going with this? Nazareth was basically one of those podunk towns. It was not even really on the map. It was, you know, you drive out here in the valley, you get farther out, farther out, and all of a sudden, you know, you go through these little towns. It's like, who lives here? You know, there's like maybe one light. I mean, who actually lives here? And you see the population, you know, 32. You know, there's 32 people that live here. This is their town. You're like, wow, this is just so out of the way. What I thought was interesting and what I learned was it says here that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. I don't know where it tells us that. If they did, it's not really recorded for us. It's what's interesting about verse 23 is that it is recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, but not using those words. It says basically in the book of Isaiah, and I'll just summarize it for our time here this morning, it talks about Jesus basically being a nobody. There's not going to be anything in Christ that you're going to be attracted to him as an individual. Matter of fact, even the town he lives in is Nobodyville. He is absolutely nobody in the world's view. They even mocked him about it. You're from Nazareth? Remember? Oh, yeah, Carpenter's son. That goofy guy from Nazareth. See, the idea that God would call a nobody is really exemplified in the fact that we see it in the life of Christ. He modeled it for us. 
I mean, if I was God and I was going to send my son to earth to die for the whole world and become the Savior, I definitely would not follow God's plan. That wouldn't be my, on my A-list. Yeah, uh, get, the, get the stable ready. <laughs> get the barn ready for my son to be born in. I don't think so. But that's exactly what God did. And he did it because he wanted to give us an example of what it means to come up through humbleness and humility. And I think when you stop and you think of how God allowed Christ to come into this world, it really does lay down for us an example of this is kind of different. It's kind of odd. I don't know if I would do it this way, but that's exactly how God did it. So it destroys all human pride to do it this way. He wants to do it so no one can boast. You can't boast in your own salvation. As a matter of fact, I think people that do boast in their own salvation, I'll just be real honest, they aren't saved. They're not saved. If they're boasting in their own salvation, sometimes I hear people's testimony and I get kind of worried, to be honest. They exemplify all the sin they lived in all their life. And then finally, I, 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 I received Christ. I did this. I did that. I, and they go on and on about themselves for another 20 minutes. And they talk about how basically they chose God and in their human wisdom, they figured out that he's the Savior. That's not how it works. And I think that we need to be reminded that, that God wants us to be humble when it comes to our own salvation. Why did God save us? It wasn't for us. It was for his glory. I mean, yeah, it's nice to have heaven as a byproduct and the glorified body and all that that we look forward to. But all that is going to be for his glory. We're not going to be up there pumping our chest going, yeah, dude, look at us now. That's not what heaven is going to be about. We're going to be continually worshiping him, serving him. I mean, I think heaven's going to be a fun place. Don't get me wrong. You know, don't think you're going to be flying around with angels. That's not going to, that'd be cool, but... You know, I think that it's, it's going to be an incredible place. But see, you're not going to get there by being wise, powerful, or of, or of noble birth. In Luke chapter 10, I was kind of caught off by this. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus says this. Luke 10, 21. He says, in the same hour, he's dealing with 70, sending out the, the 72 and all that, and he says, in the same hour, it says, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That means, in our vernacular, that means he was really, really, really happy. I mean, it was just flowing out of him, the original language. I mean, he couldn't contain himself. He was so filled with joy. In 
the Holy Spirit. And look at what he says. He says, this just doesn't make any sense in our minds. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Um, wait a minute. <laughs> that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you ever think that Jesus was rejoicing? He was overflowing with joy because his father hid these things from the wise, from the understanding. The implication is from the prideful. They're hidden from them. They're unable to see it. They're unable to perceive the gospel. Because it's something that's spiritually discerned. See, the gospel doesn't come to us in an advertising campaign. It comes to us through the power of the Spirit. It comes to us through the power of the Word. It's not something you can just sit down and figure out. So God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, even things like a Nazarene, things that shouldn't even exist, to bring to nothing things that are. What's that tell us? It tells us, you know what, if you're holding on to your own wisdom, if you're holding on to your own wealth, if you're holding on to your own nobility, in the end, you ain't going to be holding on to nothing. Nothing. It's all going to be gone. So I'm going to be wiped out. I mean, we see this sometimes. People in politics, you know, they get into politics and they run for office and they promise you, they promise you the sky. I mean, oh, it's going to be so wonderful if you just vote for me. And whether they fulfill it or not, it's irrelevant. Because basically, from the time they get elected, man, the time is kick, the clock is ticking. They're not going to be there forever. They'll be replaced by somebody else. Not so with God. God is not going to be replaced by anyone. He will be there the day you leave this earth. And you're called into eternity. And you sit before his judgment throne. What did you do with my son? What did you do with the Savior that I gave you? There won't be any excuse. You can't say, well, I didn't understand. No. There won't be any excuse on that day. He does all this so that even no human being might boast in the presence of God. There will be a lot of things in heaven, but boasting will not be there. And it tells us why he did this, the purpose in verse 30. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ. You are literally out of Christ. It's calling you out of Christ. You're, you're in Christ. You're, you're, your life flows out of Christ is the understanding there. Why? Because became wisdom to us 
wisdom from God. Believers are given God's wisdom. We don't need human wisdom. We don't need human philosophy to guide our lives. God has given us all we need to know in this book. That's why it's so important when we offer opportunities to come and study this book that we come. Because by not doing so, we're saying, eh, I don't need to hear it again. I don't need God's wisdom. Been there, done that. Well, also, believers receive God's righteousness. Why is that? Because we don't have any of our own. <laughs> we are absolutely righteousness-less, I guess. We have nothing when it comes to righteousness before a holy God. He needs to impute the righteousness of Christ to us. And by the way, in exchange, Christ was imputed on him all of our sins, even though he was totally perfect in every way, never committed one sin ever, and yet he endured all of our sin. And then also it says believers receive God's sanctification. That means God, that sanctification process that God is making us more like Christ. I mean, I'm so thankful that this is a work of God in my life. It's not, I mean, yeah, we participate in it. And we can do some things sometimes that mess it up, frankly, right? We choose to go down a road that's sinful. Well, we need to repent. We need to come back. And believers receive God's redemption, it says. He's redeemed us. He's bought us. It's complete. Now remember, who's he writing this letter to? He's writing it to the church at Corinth. This is a church. So many times in the church today, what I see going on, it just troubles me because, you know, you see a brother or sister, maybe they fall in sin somehow, they sin. And what does the church do? Ah, they probably weren't a Christian anyway. Christian wouldn't do something like that. Whoa. What? Where's the grace in that message? Now, granted, as Christians... Our lives bear fruit, do they not? And I trust that the fruit that you're bearing is, is, is fruit that Christ is working in you and, and you see that fruit and it affirms your salvation. But strike from your mind that somehow as a Christian that you're going to mess up and that God's going to just throw his hands up and go, I'm done with you now, man. That's it never going to happen. That's why Paul can say, there is now therefore no what? Condemnation for those that are where? In Christ Jesus. Absolutely none. And yet the church heaps condemnation upon condemnation upon its own people. And then you wonder why the world sits out there and goes, huh, yeah, you want, you want me to be part of that? You guys are eating each other alive in that church. Why would I want to be part of that? I mean, I, I have better relations with people at business meetings at my company than I do see what's going on in your church. If we're going to boast, beloved, we don't boast in us. Verse 31, it says, So that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's only by God's grace that we could ever be used of him in any form or fashion. 
It was late, early in the year, January 6, 1850. It was bitterly cold in Colchester, England. And the church that had a service almost canceled it, but they didn't because the weather just kept most of the worshipers at home. It's a little primitive Methodist chapel located on Artillery Street. And there was about a dozen people that showed up for the service. Well, it became apparent after some time that the pastor couldn't make it. The weather was just too bad. And an unlearned man rose, stood up behind the pulpit, and spoke hesitantly from Isaiah 45, 22. He kind of even stumbled over the words. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Then the crowd dispersed. <laughs> thinking, well, that's a waste of time. What a loss of a time coming out for this service. Well, those in the congregation didn't realize that a 15-year-old boy had ducked into the room to escape that snowstorm. And hearing those words uttered from Isaiah of this unlearned, probably deacon in the church who just stood up and said, well, we've got to do something. Let's read some scripture. This young man Man heard that verse and he was converted. And years later, that boy, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. He says, Don't hold back because you cannot preach in St. Paul's. Be content to talk to one or two in a cottage. You may cook in small pots as well as in big ones. Little pigeons can carry great messages. Even a little dog can bark at a thief, wake up the master, and save the house. Do what you do right thoroughly. Pray over it heartily. But then leave the result to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you don't call wise or powerful or people who are from noble birth in general. Usually it's people that are just the opposite. It's not that you can't call the wise. You do on occasion. But it's not the majority. Lord, we thank you that the message of the cross is a message of need. It's a message that reveals our lack of ability to save ourselves. That's why we need to look at the cross. That's why we need to look to the Savior, because we need one because of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. And you call us to turn from that sin and turn to the Savior, expressing our grief over it and our brokenness over it and You challenge us to live for you through the power of the Spirit that you give us. Lord, you equip us to do everything you call us to do. 
And Father, I can't help but believe there's some people here, even in our congregation, some Christians here, that, Lord, you have gifted them with abilities, (laughs) just incredible spiritual gifts, abilities, personalities, that you want to use for your glory. And yet somehow along the way, they forgot to consider and to reconsider and to reconsider their calling. Maybe that excitement that was there when they first came to Christ has worn off. But Lord, the fact of the matter is you still called them and you still saved them and you still equipped them with the Holy Spirit and you've gifted them and you've called them to do the work of the ministry. Whether it's reaching out to a neighbor, whether it's meeting a friend for coffee, whether it's talking with a coworker about the things of Christ. Lord, you call us to be bold in this society. There's a lot of people that are bold for the wrong things. I pray that the church would stand up and be willing to be bold for the right things, for the true message that can save that loss and disparage soul. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you will allow us to leave this place asking ourselves, what, what does the community of Redwood City see about Grace Bible Church when they see us as a church? as a whole and as individuals? Do they see grace? Do they see forgiveness? Do they see love? Or do they see self-righteousness and condemnation and judgment? Lord, those things will come from you one day if they don't turn to you. But we don't need to be a picture of those things to a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would cry out to you even now, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. That's a prayer when prayed from a sincere heart that you will answer. You'll save them even now. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.